At some point, we had to be bigger than Kawhi Leonard's free agent decision. And guess what, y'all? That time has arrived. Welcome in to episode 16 of Reteaching the Game, the free agent context. Fresh and on your doorstep, I am your man, Ethan Noroff, and I am thrilled to have you with me. On today's episode, you know it's going to be all about NBA free agency. We're four days in. There's already been more than $3 billion spent. And so as a result of that, we're going to get all into what that means for the team spending all that cheddar. We're going to talk about the difference between acquisition costs and opportunity costs, what teams are trading in and what teams are buying into. And we're going to talk about why context is king when we're in the evaluation game. If you're new to the episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, listen on Spotify, on Stitcher, all these other platforms, pretty much anywhere where streaming audio is available. You know you can hit that follow button. And if you're new on Apple Podcasts, I really appreciate if you take the time, give it a five-star rating, leave a review. I do read all the feedback back received and it is always appreciated without further ado i do have to make one very important announcement if you are one of those people who finds yourself coming to this podcast loving what i have to say about the lakers please head over to the hoopball lakers twitter account click follow subscribe and apple Podcasts to the hoopball lakers podcast that is the podcast that i am the lead host on yes there are now two podcasts coming from your main man. And if you are here for Lakers specific content, please head over there because that is where we are really going to drill down on the nitty gritty with the Lakers now moving forward and all season long. Very, very excited about that. But it's important to me that on this podcast, I still keep it about life. I still keep it about teaching and I still keep it about the league at large. The difference for me between acquisition costs and opportunity costs. And both of these things apply both in NBA circles and real life, right? The acquisition cost is basically how we can define this in very basic terms is the cost of acquiring a customer, right? You get a new coupon in the mail for a brand of yogurt you've never tried before. And maybe you don't even keep yogurt in the fridge, but you got a free one. Hey, look at that. That was their acquisition cost. They just acquired you as a customer because they sent you a free one when you bought one, right? You spent money in a place you would never otherwise do so. That's a great example of acquisition cost. In life, it's a little less tangible. To me, acquisition cost is more about buy-in. Does the person you're talking to or the people that you're talking to buy into what you do? And when I say that, I don't mean they buy into your role professionally. I mean, they buy into you as a person. Do they give you the benefit of the doubt, right? Do they believe in you, in your capacity? And that's a little bit harder when you're talking about person to person interaction. In business, it's a lot more tangible, but in real life, That's influenced by relationships, that's influenced by trust, and influenced by a series of actions over time. The difference between acquisition and opportunity cost, right? Opportunity cost is the loss of potential gain. So in other words, if you have an NBA team that's sitting on the sidelines, that's waiting for one very specific decision to be made, and they are letting all these other players sign elsewhere for various amounts of money, right? That is the opportunity cost of that particular pursuit. By the way, do you know a team like that? When you're talking about the value and the cost of doing business, right? Value is a driving factor and time is a driving factor. If you're short on time, you're willing to pay more. If you're looking for value, you might be willing to wait. 
And in some cases, there is a value to both uncertainty and certainty. Now, please don't get me confused. I am not saying that in the same case, there will be both. What I am saying is for some teams and for some people, the value of certainty is more important than uncertainty. Let me give you an example. Blake Griffin. Of course, Blake Griffin was not a free agent this summer because he's locked into a long-term deal with the Detroit Pistons. Of course, he signed that long-term deal with the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, the Pistons, they didn't have a lot of financial flexibility this offseason, right? They actually did a pretty good job acquiring one of the Morris twins and Derrick Rose for a combined under $20 million total outlay or some ridiculous number like that. Derrick Rose got $15 million over two years, and I believe the Morris twin got about the biannual exception, something around there. Regardless, they did a good job of that. But the reason they don't have a lot of money to work with is Blake Griffin. They said, look, we're willing to make this trade because we need the value of certainty. We need to know for a fact that we can put a star next to Andre Drummond. And it might not be perfect, but there is no way we're going to get a player of Blake Griffin's caliber or anything comparable to sign here in free agency right now. So for us, the value of that certainty, even if it caps our team at good, average, marginal, whatever the ceiling is, there is a value for us to be had there. And in this particular free agent class, that's exactly what you saw play out with the Knicks. When the Knicks went out and dropped all this money on a group of veteran players, many people, myself included, were critical. Now, I'll tell you that I like that the Knicks contracts, except for Julius Randle, all carry team options in the second year of a two-year deal, right? I understand that that can help improve their trade value. But by and large, the Knicks have been criticized because they could have absorbed dead contracts or bad contracts from other teams, extracted additional assets like draft picks, and basically rented out their cap space while they were going to remain non-competitive in order to build for the future. Right now, the Knicks have two first-round picks in 2021. They have their own and Dallas's. That's from the Porzingis trade. They have two first-round picks in 2023. Same two, Dallas and the Knicks. And they could have had at least two additional first-round picks in Iguodala and Harkless because both of those guys were salary dumped. And they each got a first-round pick attached to them as a result. And I'm not going to sit here and defend the Knicks because if I were running the Knicks, the decision that I would have made would have been to absorb contracts and extract additional assets. But I would like to present the other side when we're talking about context and specifically the value of certainty. Okay. The Knicks, they, they need to build something. They're seeking to rebuild the culture, really to build a culture. They're seeking some level of accountability. They probably want to instill some form of mentorship. And they're working really hard to reverse a perception about the team. And in a business that is largely word of mouth between players, agents, executives, and all the people sitting at the table, there is something to be said for that. 
what type of value you put on that and how that dictates your decision making, that's different. But that part of the conversation needs to be recognized, okay? The Knicks have struggled to attract talent in free agency for a while now. So while the optics of the situation for what the Knicks did, signing Julius Randle for over $60 million, giving Bobby Portis $30-plus million, bringing in Taj Gibson for $20 million, Wayne Ellington got $16, Reggie Bullock got $21, Alfred Payton got $8 million. The optics look like the Knicks panicked. They saw the Nets sign Kyrie, they saw the Nets sign KD, and then the optics made it look like they panicked. And whether or not that's the reality, that's the way it came across. But if the Knicks are seeking to pursue this path because of what I said, in order to try and build a culture, to build accountability, mentorship, reverse the perception, the Knicks have Kevin Knox, RJ Barrett, and Mitchell Robinson, three players who they need to work out to their future, who's going to show them the way? And again, I'm not on this side of the argument, but in order to be an effective communicator, you have to recognize the opposite perspective and be prepared for the response. So that's where I'm at with context, because in a vacuum, the only deal that the Knicks signed in free agency, well, really two of them. There are two that I like. The Julius Randle deal, the third year is a team option, three years, 63 million. Julius Randle's a really, really good basketball player. He does not get the credit he deserves, okay? Bobby Portis, two years, $31 million, second year team option. Is it a little bit of an overpay? Maybe. But Bobby Portis is better than people think. I get what the Knicks are trying to do in terms of putting something respectable on the floor, but it wouldn't have been my decision to make. That is not the route I would have gone. So if I'm the Knicks... I look to have something respectable out on the floor and I try to create a culture of something and maybe then I maintain my flexibility over the next two years and look to acquire somebody via trade because I think the Knicks should be in the no choice business. I think the Knicks relying on free agency is not a good scenario. And sometimes you have to create your destiny rather than leave it up to fate. In fact, I'm a firm believer that you have to do that. Sometimes pieces of the puzzle align, but to expect the entire puzzle to simply align because of timing is not something you can move forward with and expect progress. Another good example of this is New Orleans. David Griffin has done a marvelous job with that roster since the Anthony Davis trade. I mean, the dude's been on the job for like three months and he's already remade that team and then some. Of course, getting Zion is certainly a nice start, right? I mean, let's be honest here. But you look at a player like Darius Miller. When we learned that Darius Miller was re-signing in New Orleans, it wasn't a surprise. But what was a major surprise for many people was the contract figure. Two years, $14.25 million. Of course, the second season is non-guaranteed. So from the team's perspective, it creates a trade asset. It shows It's a show of loyalty, really at no cost, because the Pelicans weren't going to be spending elsewhere anyway. And Dan Favali, okay, 
If you don't follow Dan on Twitter, go ahead and change that. Because this is a guy I worked with for many years at Bleacher Report. And this is one of the smartest writers who's out there. This is a guy who's very meticulous with his information and really has a knack for the game. Big ups to Dan. Had a great tweet today. Darius Miller, over the past two seasons, Darius Miller has made 283-point shots at a 38.8% clip, right? Pretty good. In the past two years, players that have matched or exceeded that mark, their names are Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, Paul George, J.J. Redick, Kyle Korver, Kyrie Irving, Joe Ingles, Buddy Heald, Tobias Harris, Joe Harris, Danny Green, and Boyan Bogdanovich. By the way, Tobias Harris just got $180 million. Clay Thompson just got $190 million. Stephen Curry's making over $200 million. Paul George is on a max contract. Kyrie Irving just signed for $140 million in Brooklyn. Boyan Bogdanovich got $70-plus million. And every other name on there is a recognized three-point assassin. So, yeah, Darius Miller, he's going to fill a need for that Pelicans team. And they just added J.J. Redick, too. They've done a really good job. So these deals, while in a vacuum, we sit here and analyze them, we really shouldn't. There is no vacuum in life. If I want to go out and spend $40 at the farmer's market on stone fruit, because that, for some people, might be really expensive. I agree. But if that keeps me off of eating candy and from artificial sugar and has me feeling better about myself and I can afford to do that, then you know what? That shouldn't be judged in a vacuum. That should be judged and evaluated in context, right? Okay, now we're starting to see something. So in life, there's no vacuum. We got to stop evaluating free agent paydays like that. I think it's really important. And in context, the last point that we have to make here, right? Chris Middleton and Tobias Harris just got $180 million over five years. Is either one of them that level of player? If you're talking about talent and comparing them to who else makes that level of money, in my opinion, no. But again, it's not in a vacuum. So Tobias Harris... For Philly, there was a certain element of a sunk cost there already because of what they had to give up to acquire him. Okay? That's important context. I'm not saying that's the right decision. I'm not saying that's the wrong decision. But that is critical in understanding the overall evaluation and how we arrived at the decision-making process. Chris Middleton. Is he worth $180 million to any other team? Maybe but he's worth every penny to the Bucks because of the construct that they have in place. And again, when you have a, a personal stake in an investment, when you have invested in Amazon before it was anything notable, and you have seen that investment just rise sky high, it's hard to let go. It really is, especially when you're mm, this close to the ultimate payoff, right? Remember, Chris Middleton was considered the throw-in in the Brandon Knight for Brandon Jennings swap back in the day. Fun fact. So now that we've got through some of this free agency notes, we got to get into the fun stuff, the steals, deals, and the repeals, right? One of the steals for me was Kevon Looney 
at three years and $15 million. And I'm sure I'm not alone on that stance. I guess my question when it comes down to Looney is, why did Kevon Looney get three years and $15 million, but somebody like Dwayne Dedman gets three years and $40 million? Now, I know Dedman can shoot the three and Looney can't, but... Look, I'm not saying Dedman isn't worth his money either. I like Dedman as a player. But it just felt like more teams should have been in on Kevon Looney, especially with how hamstrung the Warriors are financially as a result of everything that's transpired with that team. Now, financially, Jimmy Butler wasn't a steal, but by the way that he got to Miami, the Heat had really no business being in the Jimmy Butler Derby, and he basically forced his way there. Of course, it cost them four years and $142 million to do it, but they got out of Hassan Whiteside. That's something they've been looking to do for a long time. And to move away from Dwayne Wade and to move into Jimmy Butler, well, that's pretty nice if you're Pat Riley. The Utah Jazz have been unbelievable this offseason, right? They've been on fire. One of the best teams in the West, without question. Getting Ed Davis at two years, $10 million, slides right into the room exception. That's a steal. Ed Davis makes an impact on every team that he's on. I don't know why this guy can't find a long-term home, but every team that he's on, he makes an impact. And I would put Jeff Green there, but basically any guy on a minimum could be a steal in the right situation. So we're not going to go down that road. But I do like the Jeff Green fit, too. The last one for me in the steals category is Rashawn Holmes. Two years, $10 million. Again, the room exception for Sacramento. That's a guy the Lakers could have been on easily. That's a, that's a guy a lot of teams should have been on. But the reality is, circumstance really dictates how role players get paid. It's amazing. Jordan Clarkson, remember, once got four years, $50 million. Is he getting that contract now? I don't think so. The deals of free agency, we talked about J.J. Redick signing in New Orleans. Two years, $26.5 million. What a great fit. Lonzo, Redick, Drew, Ingram, Zion. They're going to be a fun team, the Pelicans. I don't know how many games they're going to win, but they're going to be a fun team to watch. I love that Brooke Lopez is going back to Milwaukee. I'm glad that he was able to find a home there. And four years, $52 million. Even that is a pretty good deal. But if you look at it as about five years and $55 million, right, given that he was there last year, that's a lot more palatable too. That was a good deal for Milwaukee and for the player. Jonas Valanciunas, three years, $45 million. I thought he'd get a little bit more than that. But again, context, right? What was his market? So I like the Valanciunas pickup because the Grizzlies can move off of that deal if they need to as well. It doesn't lock them into anything long-term. And they've got a lot to evaluate. They're rebuilding from the ground up. The grit and grind era is over. Maybe grit and grind 2.0, but the OG era is over. Last week at the farmer's market, I had a friend and I were walking back and forth. And I said, how much money do you think Jeremy Lamb signs for? I said, if your team pays him three years, 35 million, aren't you a lot happier than three years, 45 million? And he was ready to commit 40 million over three years. And you know what? Jeremy Lamb got 31 and a half million dollars from the Pacers. That's a good pickup for them. The Pacers with Malcolm Brogdon and Jeremy Lamb. It's going to be an interesting team. A lot of people were wondering why Boyan Bogdanovich was allowed to just walk out that door. Well, Malcolm Brogdon is the reason why. By the way, Malcolm Brogdon, 50-40-90 last year. Did you know? And finally on the deals for me, Ennis Cantor, two years, $10 million. Again, that room exception packed. 
look, Cantor is what he is. He's remarkably consistent, double-doubles, not a lot of defense, going to be very vocal even in times when you hope that he's not. That's how it goes. On the repeals category, it's just a handful of guys. And really, look, I'm not trying to denigrate any of these guys. But Terrence Ross at $13.5 million a year, four years, $54 million, I don't get that. Because I know he had a nice year in Orlando last year. The Magic seemed to like what he bring to the table. Maybe he's worth a little bit more there than anywhere else. But that's the type of contract that gets you in trouble. Look at the summer Pat Riley paid Kelly Olenek, James Johnson, and Dion Waiters. Terrence Ross doesn't elevate the ceiling of your team. He might elevate the ceiling of your bench. Maybe. I'm not the biggest Terrence Ross guy. I did not like that. I did not think his market was over $50 million, nor should it have taken four years to get a commitment. And if that were the case, Orlando might have considered letting him go. Corey Joseph. Again, Corey Joseph, fine player. Three years, $37 million from the Sacramento Kings. How about an offer, free, an offer sheet for Tyus Jones or DeLon Wright, who are both still sitting out there as restricted free agents? How about either one of those guys instead of Corey Joseph? Again, just opportunity costs for me. Frank Kaminsky in Phoenix, two years, $10 million. I don't know what Frank Kaminsky has shown to deserve anything more than the minimum at the NBA level. And Phoenix, I just don't understand what they're doing. Dario Saric, Cam Johnson, Frank Kaminsky but you let Rashawn Holmes walk for nothing. For literally, you let Rashawn Holmes walk for the same price you just paid Frank Kaminsky. Would you make that trade? Would you trade Rashawn Holmes for Frank Kaminsky? I wouldn't. I don't think a lot of people would. So another one for the Suns, right? DJ Khaled, another one. And finally, Rodney Magruder. I like the player, but he was hurt for the entirety of last season. The Clippers picked him up on waivers. I thought he would re-sign, maybe take the qualifying offer or the minimum, slightly above. Three years, $15 million. Feels like a bet on the future more than the present. But I don't know where else his market was coming from. Before we wrap it up and get out of here, I got to talk to you guys about something semi-serious. Right. We always try to wrap up with a TED talk, some sort of inspirational piece you could take with you. I think it's important. And today I want to talk a little bit about the silent struggle. Two deaths this week in the sports community. Tyler Skaggs at 27, Jared Lorenzen at 38. Two prominent deaths in the community this week. If you're unfamiliar, Tyler Skaggs, 27 year old major league pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Jared Lorenzen, brief NFL career. Did resurface semi-professionally in football a couple of times. Really struggled with weight and weight control and ultimately lost his life at 38 due to health complications. Whatever your struggle is or may be, please do not suffer in silence. Communication is so incredibly important in whatever medium you are most comfortable in. Please exercise it. We have voices so we can use them. Do not let anyone or anything think that they can silence you. It is incredibly important for you to speak your truth in a way that is liberating for you. So long as it is not with violence. So long as it is with love and respect and compassion and kindness. And if we were more honest with one another about the help that we need, this world would be a better place. So please, if you are struggling, if you know someone who is struggling, help them, help yourself. 
I have seen too many people, lost too many friends, and just had too much death around me to sit here and be silent. It is so important to discuss these things. The most important topics in life, most of them, they're uncomfortable to discuss, or at least they can be. But that's how we make real progress, and we change the world one person at a time. Episode 16, Reteaching the Game. Ethan Noroff, follow me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Noroff. Until next time, and Kawhi Decides, we out.